Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. episode 92. This is Richie, and as always, I'll be joined by Spencer and Brian. Be sure to give us a follow on Twitter. Spencer can be found at QCH Spencer, Brian at Begeis underscore Bird, and myself at Richie Randall. Just wanted to remind you that we are a proud member of the Blue Wire Network, and you can find more content at bluewirepods.com. On today's episode, We have a lot to get to, and we'll probably jump around all over the place, Um, but we're going to answer some of your questions in a rapid-fire manner. We're going to recap the Brooklyn Nets game from Saturday, and also talk some big-picture stuff as the Hornets try to make their last-ditch push for the playoffs. I think the most logical place to start, guys, is the game against the Nets Saturday night. This was a game in which the Hornets had another slow start, only scoring 20 in the first, Charlotte were once down 19, uh, but also led late in the fourth, and we thought that they were going to win this game. Uh, I think they had an eight-point lead at one point, but uh, D'Angelo Russell in the Nets slowly dwindled that lead, and he made several big shots late, and Brooklyn won this crucial game in the East. Uh, If we had won this game, we would have been tied with them. Actually, we would have been ahead of them based on the loss column. Russell scored 12 points in the final three minutes, and Hornets lost another close game. The theme of the season, the theme of uh, the Hornets for the past couple of seasons, they lost 117-115. All right, so I think I think we'll get to the end of the game, uh, the, the call, the no-call debate, if Kimba was fouled. Uh, but first I want to talk about some big-picture stuff uh, that's been happening not just this game but against the Wizards as well. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on Miles Bridges. He has started the past couple of games at the three, shifting Batum down to the two, and then also Lamb goes to the bench. So my question to you all is, why do you think that this move was made? And do you see it having a big effect moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it makes a a big difference. Obviously, Nick Batum has been way more aggressive uh, in in these two games coming out of the All-Star break. Um, You know, I... I think the Hornets look at their situation moving forward. They know Nick Batum is going to be on this roster most likely for two more years. They know Miles Bridges is the future small forward uh, for this team. And when you have Kimba Walker, Jeremy Lamb, and Nick Batum on the floor together, uh, that's a lot of uh, offensive hands um, on a not great offensive team that need to touch the ball, so to speak. And so, like, Nick Batum's willingness to be a little bit passive um, from time to time uh you know, he faded into the background when he was on the floor with Lamb and Kimba at the same time, and he didn't know how to get involved. You know, it's frustrating that we keep going through this. Of You almost have to spoon-feed Nick Batum his touches, almost like a running back, kind of. Um, he can't find ways to get himself involved, which is which is frustrating. But you watch these two games out of the All-Star break, and you immediately see 
that Nick Batum uh, now feels like he can, the offense can run through him. He can come to the basketball. He can create offense. And the returns haven't been awful. So, yeah, it makes a big difference. And the second thing, the second reason I really think that Hornets made this move is to get Miles Bridges, again, the future small forward uh, of this team, to get him more minutes, uh, to get him more reps, uh, to get him more defensive experience guarding some of the best wings in the league. That's what it's going to take for him to mature. Uh, and to develop defensively. So I, I think those are your two main reasons. You know, obviously the outlook of saying, well, Nick Batum's part of our future for the next two years isn't rosy. And I don't say he's part of our future really in, a, in necessarily an optimistic way, but it's, it's re, you know, it's realistic, right? You can't, can't just send this guy to the end of the bench. You have to find a way to use him. And as frustrating as it is, you do have to literally spoon feed this guy his touches, so to speak. And so I, I just think that's why this move was made. And Jeremy Lamb, I, we've always talked about, like, he is kind of built like the six-man volume mm-hmm. scorer anyways. Mm-hmm. So that's just, like, my initial reactions to this. Yeah, so the move didn't catch me off guard that much. It actually made me think of something that we talked about on the last episode, which was, which was a while ago now. And we discussed after the Orlando game, which was – perhaps the bench's worst game of the season, right? And we discussed how Brago basically had two things he needed to figure out on top of a lot of other stuff. But two main things we were sort of talking about, which was improve the bench, make the bench offense better, and find ways for Miles Bridges and Malik Monk, these young guys, to get minutes while you're going towards a playoff run. These are two things we talked about. Spencer, you were the one who brought up how this was going to be a tough sort of like needle for Brago to thread. It could be entirely unrelated, you know, but Lamb going to the bench, you put a double figure, efficient, relatively efficient score, good, decent three point shooter, good pick and roll play. You put him on the bench with Tony Parker. Now you got two guys coming off the bench, second force offense. And then you get miles bridges, the opportunity to, to play on the starting lineup, to develop, to play next to Kemba and you let him do it in an environment where he's going to be playing with good players too, like Marvin and Cody Zeller and and obviously Kemba too. So I think it works on that front as well. Um, So far, so good. They're two games, 27 minutes with Bridges, Walker, Batum, Williams, and Cody Zeller. Hornets, 122.4 points per 100 possessions, allowing 105 points uh, per 100 possessions, a net rating of uh, over 17, plus 17, uh, effective shooting 57%, and they've been really good on the glass. Um, 86% defensive rebound rate, 68% rebound rate overall in those 27 minutes. Uh, I mean, look, they weren't doing it against great teams, um, especially Washington, but early returns on that movement so far so good and bridges had a nice game against the wizards too uh four stocks 14 points six to nine shooting hit a three a little more quiet offensively against brooklyn but i think it makes sense on a couple of fronts because it helps improve the bench a little bit lamb's already secured himself some money in free agency too right it's like he doesn't he's shown right over the majority of the season what he can do offensively and he can do the same thing if they, you know, coming off a bench, do back to his microwave score ways. And if they make, if they do in fact make the playoffs, you know, he'll get a couple of playoff games to show people what he can do against, you know, in better teams or, you know, like he, 
I think this is a, a move that even Lamb can lean into, even if it does feel like a demotion. You know what I mean? It's, it's really not because Borrego's not trying to. It, it's not a punishment for Lamb. He's trying to accomplish other things by moving the pieces on the chessboard around a little bit. And um, you know, for someone like you know, someone like us, we're we're sort of focusing on the future beyond this season of this team. I think it's um, I'm, it's good to see Miles Bridges perhaps rested, rejuvenated after an all-star break, getting a shot to, to play with the starters. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, we saw this more in the Wizards game because he was in foul trouble against the Nets. I think he picked up his, like, third yeah. foul two minutes into the second quarter. Um, didn't uh-huh. play a whole lot. Uh, so those numbers that you probably brought up, Brian, were probably more focused with that Wizards game. But I, I just, I like the fit a little bit more. Um, I think the Lamb and the Batum fit together doesn't fully click because Lamb is not a ball mover per se. He likes to pound the ball. Batum, on the other hand, he does like to move the ball. And Miles Bridges is one of those guys that just is more of a catch-and-shoot or catch-and-drive type of guy that you can kind of run baseline to baseline, uh, spot him up in the corners or dump-offs in the short corner. Uh, Whatever you want to do with Bridges he pairs a little bit better with Batum. And then also you have that extra energy uh, on the offensive boards, the extra energy on the defensive side of the ball. I think that Lamb has been pretty bad on that side of the ball this season, especially. He has. So hopefully Miles Bridges, while not a perfect player on the defensive side, uh, you know, as a rookie, he's shown a little bit more promise uh, than Lamb. And he's more, you know, he's switchier, he's athletic. Um, I know that he kind of lacks some length and, and maybe guarding a little bit of the bigger players, but he definitely has that athleticism to kind of stay in front of other people. But I, I think it was more of a fit thing because it keeps the ball moving. It forces Batum to be that ball mover, get the ball in his hands more often. And I'm sure his usage numbers have gone up the past couple of games, uh, Batum that time, is. Yeah. Um, so that that's probably a byproduct of him playing with, uh, or without Lamb, I should say. Um, another thing that I kind of wanted to note over these past couple of games is just, and, you know, Spencer, you talked about this as well, the Hornets are just becoming a little bit more switch-heavy, uh, almost yeah. almost switching everything. And I think the biggest player that I'm noticing a difference with is Cody Zeller. Um, he is staying in front of guards, whether it's on dribble handoffs, uh, off-ball screens. He's doing an amazing job of getting matched up on guards and stifling them, you know, not allowing them to, uh, you know, get a full head of steam going to the basket or just defending the shots in general. He did a, had a couple good possessions against Beal. He also had a possession last night against Karis LeVert that I remember early in the game where he just stayed with them and was unable to get up a shot. So what are your thoughts on either Zeller himself or just the Hornets becoming more switch-heavy? Do you think it's because we're struggling on the defensive end, so Borrego's just trying to do something different? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think we've seen this <clears throat> kind of for a while now, um, kind of slowly matriculated into this defensive system that's almost switch-exclusive. Um, and yes, you're right, Zeller does give you... And it gives you that uh, versatility to feel like you can, you know, live with your center um, guarding a point guard or a shooting guard late into the shot clock. I think where it really hurts Charlotte, we'll continue to see this. We've seen it in these last two games is, you know, when your center is guarding the ball, um, you know, a great example, D'Angelo Russell, really good player, player we're kind of watching turn into a star in front of our own eyes here in the last month or so. It takes him away from the defensive glass when he's got to contest that shot. And the Hornets really struggle to get those mm-hmm. those defensive rebounds in key moments. You know, those are momentum killers. And 
that's really the number one reason on any level of basketball. I just don't like the switch exclusive style. Switching on the wings is one thing. Mm -hmm. Switching three to four, it's fine. Two to three, whatever. Um, But when you're asking your center to contest shots at the top of the arc, wherever on the floor, you're taking him out of a position to really do his number one job, and that's clean up the glass, uh, make sure you you limit your opponent's possessions. And so that's really my biggest – I I don't know how the Hornets fix that. They don't have the horses on the wing – uh, or the athleticism to to go clean up the glass behind him. Um, so I, I don't think they're going to change anything. I think Brego feels like this this gives this team the best chance to force teams late into the shot clock and make them work for shots, and then we'll figure out you know the the defensive glass later. I think that's probably the mentality, and that's fine. But uh, it's it's just kind of a desperate style to me, uh, and the Hornets aren't communicating through it either. I mean, that's, that's really probably the most frustrating part. I mean, last night in the, the second quarter of the Brooklyn game, I mean, I, I can show you three or four possessions where they're just not talking uh, and they're not communicating through very simple flare screens or ball screens, and nobody knows who's guarding who. I mean, and, and look, we got 23 games to go in the season, guys. Like, we got to be past that now. So I get – I understand the idea of, of what he's trying to accomplish, James Brago, with this system, but – the limitations it gives the Hornets on the glass and the fact that we're still not, we're still not communicating correctly through it is a little bit uh, puzzling. I would say. Yeah. I think, again, it gives them, at least they know what to do. Right. Or at least that would be the thought, you know, there's a certain type of screen. And as long as it's not beyond we're going to switch, but then it, it does, you know, like Spencer's Spencer made a good point. You know, it, it weakens them on the glass, <clears throat> Even though the Hornets are, you know, they're an okay defensive rebounding team this season, I guess. But, like, it, it hurts them on the glass. And on top of that, too, it, you know, if you have, if Kemba's one of those guys having to switch, well, then you've got to make, you've got to make another move outside of that, too. Like, if he switches on to Jared Allen, and Jared Allen then goes into the post last night, well, then you got to switch behind the play, too. you got to scramble and, and, and do something. So it just, it causes... This team would have to make multiple movements, multiple shifts, and for a team that doesn't have elite defensive personnel, that it, it's a little risky. But but I, I'm still in favor of them going to this approach because I, I don't know what how many of their options they have. All right, let's uh, let's get into the non-call at the end of this game. Um, it seems like it was a Kimba versus D'Angelo Russell battle down late. They traded baskets. Kimba had a very uh, frustrating first half, but he turned it around in the second half. He scored 28 of Charlotte's 65 points in the second half. And actually, in the last five games, Kimba's averaging 17.6 points in the second half. That's fourth best in the NBA behind Paul George, Kyrie, and Bradley Beal. So I do have a clip from James Borrego in his post-game presser about his thoughts and feelings about this non-call late in the game. So let's take a listen real quick. Even if it's a 50-50 call, I mean, that's, that's Kemba in this building and he's kind of built a little bit of star power. Is it particularly frustrating? It's either a foul or it's not a foul. It's either a foul or it's not a foul. And I know what I saw, and I just saw it on film. I know what I saw. So the league can come out with their two-minute report tomorrow, and and, uh, we'll all enjoy that. Okay, so in the final seconds of this game, down two, Kimba is bringing the ball up the court. He creates space on Karis LeVert uh, with two crossovers, he pumps, he gets him into the air, uh, he waits for the contact, and then he pulls. 
no call, and then the Hornets lose the game. So I guess the simple question is to ask is, was it a foul? Was this a foul? And first off, I will say this. I agree 100% with James Borrego in his press uh, post-game press conference when he was talking about it shouldn't matter if this is Shelvin Mack, uh, Jeremy Lamb, Kimball Walker, a star or no star, a foul is a foul. And I think regardless of who the player is or what time in the game it is, a foul is a foul. But from my personal point of view, I, I can't definitively say that I thought it was a foul. So I think I have to make my decision based on what I saw. And the only contact that I saw, I know that Levert got into Kimba's space. The only contact that I saw was his elbow blocking the ball. Sure, it was lucky. Absolutely. Like it was unfortunate uh, that he actually blocked the ball with his elbow. Obviously, he wasn't intending to do that. No one would. But as much as I hate to say it, I I just can't definitively say that I thought it was a foul. I know that uh, you guys might have differing opinions on this. And we should never really boil a game down to one call. But uh, this definitely was a crucial one late in the game, and uh, without you know without the foul, the Hornets or with the foul, the Hornets could have won this game if Kimba made all three of his free throws. So, guys, was it a foul? I mean, I think like in live time last night, I'm reacting to this, and I told my wife who's sitting there watching with me, who also was like, they didn't call that a foul. Like, (laughs) in in the NBA, that is a foul 99% of the time. Like, and I, I, in my opinion, I don't think that's debatable. Um, in college, I, I just, I wouldn't expect that to get called all the time. Now to your point, Richie, all of us would like to believe I tweeted this last night. Like, yeah, I, I would, I would love to believe that we could just drop the whole star BS. Right. Yes. And, 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 and the calls, mm-hmm. the call, but, but we all know that that's not reality. So that's the number one confusing part is that Kimba continues not to get these calls in situations it feels like, or just as often as he should. But my, just go back. I'll just give you some tangible examples you can go back and look at. D'Angelo Russell gets a, a three, gets a foul called. Kimba gets called for the foul uh, late second quarter, maybe mid-second quarter on a play very, very similar. Comes around the screen. Kimba goes over top of the screen. D'Angelo, we, as Hornets fans, we see this all the time. Batum loves to do this. And, and Kimba does it too. Catches it. As soon as he comes off the screen, the guy's trailing him. And immediately, as soon as the shooter goes in the air, the defender is in the shooting cylinder. Mm-hmm. Right? So the player is going to come down where the defender is. That's a foul. It doesn't even take contact. Right? You know, it's, it doesn't even require contact. And so to me, I don't understand what the difference is here. Although Kimba actually never leaves his feet, the defender does leave, leave his feet, comes down into the shooter's shooting cylinder. And to me, and to me also makes contact. I can definitively see contact there that's not just on the ball. So to me, I don't, I don't understand what the difference in D'Angelo Russell's call in the second quarter and in the non-call for Kimba is at the end of the game. I, I mean, I, I can't wait to read the two-minute report right. the NBA comes out with because I, I need it explained to me. Like, this is – we can't do this thing where it's like, yeah, but that's the la- – it's the last play of the game. Like, right. you're just that, – that's – we can't do that. That's – like, that is not an explanation to why this isn't called. It's either a foul or not. So I, I just would like an explanation of either why it's not a foul or why it is, but to me, it's very clearly a foul in the NBA. Brian, we'll get your thoughts in a second, but I know that, I know we can't actually get inside the heads of the refs. But do you guys think that this was more of like swallowing a whistle because it was late, or do you actually believe that they didn't think it was a foul? I think there's a difference there. 
I thought he, he it looks like to me, if you go look at the official, I don't know who the official was by mm-hmm. name, but he raises his hands, yep. signal a three, and then his fist clenches <laughs> like he's going to blow. It does. Like he's going to blow his whistle. And you almost look at his facial reaction because I rewound it last night. And uh, Kel, my wife's actually the one who picked this up. She's like, he, he clenches his fist and almost like, like his cheeks like uh, go in like he's going to blow a whistle. And then he does it. So I, I think it was a swallow the whistle situation okay. at the end of the game. Yeah, I think in, by the way, we are recording this early on a Sunday morning. Um, I just checked right now. The NBA officials have yet to um, publicate their official uh, last two minute report. I'm sure we'll get that later in the day. Again, I'll be curious to read what their explanation is too. I don't think it'll offer much solace. Um, for uh for the hornets but uh it, it still will be something that's worth reading yeah my, my my read on this was similar to spencer's which was for me you know I, I watched this on replay and i watched the the last play from a variety of different angles including some other ones that i dug up online afterwards you know you can it from some angles that i see contact from others i see all ball the main thing though is is that he does like Levert leaves his feet and comes into Kemba space. And like, that's the thing that I keep going back to. That makes me think that like, you know, man, I I think that's like, I think that's a foul, you know, I I really do. But it, it, like you said, it, 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 it's, it is one of those things where it's not, I don't think it's definitive. I think that's, it's something that the, the ref needs to, be what you know needs to be mindful of the play needs to be checking in on all these it's, it's a really hard job to do to be watching contact and where he landed or you know where his feet took off from whatever like all that stuff is, is it's a challenge but um for me yeah like i thought they you know like i, I thought that was a, a a missed call it just obviously considering how um the game ended you know, with the Hornets being down 19, coming back, then Russell throwing in all this slop to win the game for Brooklyn. Um, and, I mean, it probably doesn't help either that the Hornets got some tough whistles in this game too, right? Like, I mean, Cody, Cody Zeller had a great game, but he fouled out playing only but so many minutes. He had five fouls in the second half alone. Um, Miles Bridges was in foul trouble in this game too. Like, there were some tough whistles that went the Hornets' way. Um, and I think maybe that adds to sort of the overall frustration at the end of the game. You know, I wish the Hornets could have maybe had, I mean, like that's always going to be the play that they call at the end of the game. It's just going to be Kemba drive and get up a shot. Um, but it's tough when he's got a guy like Levert who's six, 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 seven on him too. Like, you know, a, a little more, um, a little more. And I mean, I know you don't, there's only four seconds left. You don't really have time to screen and it risks a trap and all this other stuff, but just, you know, I wish they could have gotten a better look at the basket. And yeah, I just, I think it was a foul and I'll be curious to read the last two minute report. If you did interpret it as a, as a no foul, I, I get it too. Cause from some angles, man, it, it doesn't, but I just can't get over the fact that Levert leaves his feet, comes into Kemba's space. And like that to me, like if that's the case and if, if contact is, you know, a, a judgment call after that well it almost shouldn't even matter and, and i think that because of that that should equate to a foul but like i don't claim to be a, a master of the rule book either <laughs> too you know what i mean so i'm not entirely sure but yeah i think it i think it was i think it was a missed call yeah and my last thought on this is if kimball would have left 
if he would have left his feet to shoot the ball, I think he gets the call. I think he throws the official off just a bit by kind of staying on his feet. And it's almost like he's uncertain if he could, if he should lean in to the contact or if he should actually leave his feet and shoot the ball. And I think that indecision probably created the indecision on the officials part. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think if he actually just shoots the basketball and leaves his Mm -hmm. feet, I think, I think he does get the call. We're going to get to your Twitter questions uh, after this uh, live read from our friends over at Ethos Life Insurance. Life can be stressful, but getting life insurance shouldn't be. That's why there's Ethos. Ethos is a modern kind of life insurance that's super fast, incredibly affordable, and very uncomplicated. At GetEthos.com, there are no medical exams for policies covering under a million dollars, no hours of paperwork or meetings with pushy representatives. It only takes 10 minutes to apply, and you can rest assured knowing you've taken steps to protect your family, and in most cases with Ethos, you can have the peace of mind for less than a cup of coffee a day with no hidden fees. Having life insurance can free you from stress. Getting life insurance shouldn't cause it. Discover how uncomplicated life insurance can be at Ethos. Get your free instant quote and submit your complete application in minutes. Just go to getethos.com. That's E-T-H-O-S. Getethos.com. Getethos.com. All right, let's jump into the Twitter questions. I know that we always ask for Twitter questions, and sometimes we don't get around to actually asking them. So uh, we kind of carved out a space here in the second half of the podcast to get to these. There were a lot, so we're not going to address all of them, but some of them overlapped. So the first one that I want to get to is from at that man Fran. Twitter question is this: best position for Miles Bridges going forward, and what do we believe his ceiling is as an NBA player? Uh, I'll start off by saying that I think that his best position moving forward is at the small forward position, partly because he lacks a little bit of that length uh, to defend fours uh, if they go down in the post. But I do think that we could all see him playing some kind of small ball four at some point. But as of now, I think the three best suits him. As far as his ceiling goes, I could see him maybe averaging 12 to 15 points, maybe getting up to six to eight rebounds per game if he were to fully reach his potential. I don't really see him being like a star player, like the number one or two option on a team, possibly a third option on a playoff team. And, and that's okay. You, you need players like that, players that don't demand the ball, that don't have to score 20 points a game to be effective. And that's okay if that's his ceiling. And I think that's perfectly okay for Miles Bridges, and he could average 15 points a game and, and grab seven rebounds a game. So that's kind of what I see him moving forward as a small forward, possibly small ball four, and being that third option on a playoff team. Yeah, I agree, Richie. I think his, his best position is unquestionably small forward. Um, it's nice that he offers you the defensive versatility to you know, go down a few positions defensively and, and obviously go up at least one position. Um, but yeah, you want him starting the game and for the majority of the game guarding um, wings, small forwards. Uh, and, and the Hornets know how important, I mean, like we were talking about early in the episode, they know how important it is to develop him defensively. Borrego's talked about it, you know, since the all-star break here. Um, you know, what, what his ceiling is, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out him, you know, one day reaching all-star level. I, I wouldn't project that or predict it, mm-hmm. but I, I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, it, I think he has a long way to go offensively, but we see flashes of, of a guy who has a great first step, 
um, has obviously has nuclear athleticism, uh, has shown some promise to shoot the ball, especially from the corners. I think the biggest thing for him offensively is learning how to play with the ball in his hands. Um, can he add a dribble or two? You know, can he add uh, more patience when he gets in the lane with his footwork? Can he play with the ball in his hands and pick and roll? All these questions are, are really what determines what his actual ceiling is. But I like what you said, Richie, you know, 15 points a game, you know, on his second co- contract and seven or eight rebounds, you know, two, two steals, you know, two blocks, you know, he, he's a guy that's a little bit, a little bit of a Swiss army knife, right? He can do a lot of mm-hmm. different things. So, but I wouldn't rule out him becoming an all-star one day. Yeah. I think for him, I think small forward is, is his position. Um, and I, obviously you'll see him teams, especially to close games and stuff like that. They, they downsize, they, they, they move everyone around the position and to add a little speed or scoring or whatever. So I always want him to have that element where he's comfortable guarding fours, playing the four in the offense, which, you know, a lot of times now the three and the four in the offense does pretty similar stuff. I mean, Marvin, you know, it's, Maybe maybe at the three you're you're doing a little more spotting up and less screening and, and slipping and, and flaring and stuff like that. But for the most part, like it, it, the responsibilities are similar. Um, I think he's all, he's shown flashes as a as a playmaker, as a guy that can put it on the deck once or twice, can pass with both hands. Um, in the limited sample size, he's actually shot well out of the pick and roll this season. Nine of sixteen shooting, fifty six percent, sixty three percent effective shooting. But he's just he's shown the ability to be a really good cutter, 85 percent shooting on cuts. Obviously, we know how this guy likes to play above the rim. It has me thinking a little bit about Tobias Harris. Um, Not that I'm making I'm not even trying to make the comparison between those two. But a couple weeks ago on his podcast, Zach Lowe was talking about Tobias Harris, the kind of guy that can fit on any team. You know, he basically you know, floats between the three and the four, basically plays like a three and a half. Mm-hmm. And with it, with his shooting, with his athleticism, with his ability to, to beat a switch with a post up or to beat a closeout, um, good cutter, good spot up player. Like you can basically put that guy on any team. And if he needs to be a lower usage guy, he could do that and just spot up. And on certain situations, if you need him to be a more featured player, more prominent, get that usage rate closer to 24, 25%, like he can do that too. And I almost see a similar thing with with uh, with Miles, which is like, if he does in fact become an all star, it's because you know he's basically excelling as like a superstar role player. Do you know what I mean? Like doing 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 being able to sort of do the these kinds of do being able to impact a game without just being a like high volume go get it score. And I think he has that in his game. I think he's most likely to settle in as like a third or a fourth option, um, which is great. Like that's great return for um, for where they got him in the draft. And and yeah, like I, I think he has. I think the in terms of his arc, the uppermost limit of it has there is some all star potential. Again, I think more likely he's he's going to settle in as a rotation guy, a starter, and a third or fourth option for. Uh, you know, a decade. And if that's the case, that's great. Because yeah. what we talked about before the draft last year was like this team, this franchise, they just had to get someone in the pipeline that they could at least hang their hat on and say, this guy's going to be here. We can build around him. Um, he's not, he's going to always bring more to the table than he does take off. And I think this off season in, in bridges checks all those boxes. And I think this off season is going to be huge for him defensively he has the potential to be special 
as we all know, he sort of lacks a little bit of awareness on that end. And you can, you can make him look bad off the ball sometimes. And even when, like last night he was tra- he was chasing Joe Harris around and it was like, this is just not like, this is a bad matchup because, you know, Joe Harris can do mean things to, to a young defender running off screens and misdirections and stuff like that. And Brooklyn does some pretty cool stuff with him in the half court. And, you know, Bridges will just run himself, run himself out of the place sometimes. Um, and, and I guess there are moments like that where you think, wow, maybe defensively he would be better at the four than just chasing around one of these one of these shooters or whatever. But I think he has the ability to improve there. And, yeah, I think absolutely he figures in as the three going forward for Charlotte. But, like, I also don't feel the need to, like, box him into one of those positions necessarily either because he does have the ability to switch – guard you know three positions maybe four if you squint hard enough and yeah again teams especially with brago who's so willing to mix and match yeah he's going to play plenty at the as a, as a small ball four too and i think there's there's good upside there as well next question comes from at k-i-e-f-w-15 how many wins do you all think that the hornets will uh, have to get to get into the playoffs or I guess just any Eastern Conference team, how many wins do you think it'll take? And do you think the Hornets will need the tiebreaker against the Magic and the Heat to get in? So first off, I do want to address the tiebreaker situation. Uh, Charlotte is currently 2-1 and one against the Magic. They play them uh, the last game of the season, actually. So that could actually end up being a pretty, pretty important game. Uh, if they do lose that game, the season series would be split. And then they're 2-0 against the Heat, but then again, they have two more games against them uh, coming before the end of the season. So how many wins do the Hornets need or any team in the East need uh, to get into the playoffs? I would say, and again, we're talking about the East, not the West, I would say 37-38 wins. Um, And I think that's going to be enough to get you into the East as the eighth seed. And and to be honest, it does seem low, but I also feel like that's going to be a tough task for the Hornets as they do have a very difficult schedule remaining. Uh, they do have some home games coming up, uh, but uh, next month is littered with uh, away games as well. You have to win the games that you're supposed to. And currently, Charlotte is 28-31. and 31, So to get to 38 wins, that means they would have to win 10 uh, of their of their remaining games, so uh, that would be below 500. But I still think 38 wins could make make it into the playoffs. But like I said, it, it could be an uphill battle because Hornets have a difficult schedule, while Magic do not. I think 40 definitely gets you in. Um, mm-hmm. I think 39 is kind of the magic number for that eight seed. Um, I mean, you look at these schedule strengths, really the three teams, I think at this point, we'll, we'll see with Detroit. I mean, you can't trust them, but so much, but they're trending in the right direction. You know, Charlotte, Orlando, Miami. Uh, Charlotte's a game and a half clear of both Orlando and Miami. Of course, it's well documented now. The Hornets have the second toughest schedule remaining in the league. Toronto twice, Golden State twice, Milwaukee and, and Philadelphia left. Um, I think you circle a team like Orlando. They have 25th hardest schedule remaining. Lots of winnable games. Two against New York, two against Cleveland, two against Atlanta. I mean, they get five of those, right? And then, Richie, you brought up a great point. Final game of the season – I believe Charlotte hosts Orlando. So, you know, I, I just, I see them. Uh, that's, that's what Steve Clifford teams do. They finish strong. Right. And, um, I see them probably getting to 39 wins, uh, 38, I would say, uh, probably more likely, but point is, I think it takes at least 39. Um, and you can't count out Miami. They've been very weird since coming back from the all-star break look awful, but 
you just can never count them out. So um, 40 definitely gets it done. I think 39 is, is where you have to, to land worst case scenario. Yeah, I um, <clears throat> I'm basically in the same ballpark as you guys. Forty, if they got forty, like they'd be in. Um, right now, Basketball Reference has them as a gives them a 56 percent chance of making the playoffs. Uh, has them slated for the eight seed with 37.9 wins. Mm. Um, Point nine. Five third, yeah, 37. Yeah. <laughs> so that and they've got the Magic at 37.7 wins and finishing ninth. Right. And I mean, if you saw what happened in Orlando's game, I, I mean, the they almost won Saturday, Friday night, and the there was a, a foul late in the game that got Larry Markin in to shoot some free throws, and he, he won for them on the on basically I think right at the buzzer um, on on a foul with Aaron, Aaron Gordon. Five thirty eight has the Hornets predicted to win thirty seven games and has them as like a forty forty three percent chance of making the playoffs. Yeah, I think if you could get to thirty nine is like your safest. I guess sort of like semi reasonable bet. I think if they get to 38, it's going to give them a pretty good chance. Just sort of like trying to read the tea leaves based off these two projection models. But man, it's, it's, you know, it's going to be tough. Tiebreakers are important. And, and yeah, they've just got to win is that's why last night the, the loss to Brooklyn, that's why it stings so much. Cause that was a chance for them to, to pick up a, a much needed game at, at home. And they had to play Kemba the entire second half to get there too. Um, they play the Warriors Monday. Draymond Green got injured in the game last night against Houston. The Golden State said they'd kick out more information about that today on Sunday. But I think the indication is that he's okay and, and may play on Monday. We'll see. But um, not like that. I guess it makes that much of a difference there. But, yeah, <laughs> I think the uh, I think 38-39 would do it. I'd feel much better if they could get to 39, obviously. But, you know, who knows? The, the things are, you know, schedule's tough. So yeah. we'll see. 38 might be one of those things where they have to own the tiebreaker. 39 might be one of those, you know, the games where they just can win it without the tiebreaker. So yeah. uh, the next question kind of builds off of this one. Uh, at Mountaineer Heel asked, other than Kemba, who is the X factor for making that playoff push and getting into the playoffs? Let's just kind of go rapid fire through this one. For me, I think it's Batum. Uh, we have to continue to see him play aggressive, facilitate in the offense, uh, make the occasional three, which I feel like he's been doing lately for this team to be successful. And I think that Borrego made this lineup change to kind of facilitate that and, and force him to become a little bit more aggressive. But if he does revert back to his passive ways, I think that the team almost operates as if there are only four players on the court. So to me, I mean, Batum's not our second best player, but I think that he's the X factor to kind of pushing us uh, and making the playoffs if that's what you want. This is a boring answer, but I think it's Kemba Walker. Um, you know, I I think it's nice that Nick Batum's going to start the two uh, the shooting guard position now and and give Kemba a little bit of a break, especially at the beginning of games, to not have everything going through him. But uh, I'll be honest, to me, Kemba has to return to, and it's not fair to Kemba, right, to ask him of this, but he has to return to his early season form. I, I think if Charlotte. Um, is, is solidly in the playoff picture. Um, and again, I know it's a boring answer, but like he just means that much to this team. Yeah, I think so. Outside of Kemba, um, who by the way, the six to twelve shooting out of the pick and roll in the second half uh, against Brooklyn, including four of nine on three pointers, seven of sixteen for the game. I mean, just a, he, he had some some big moments for the for Charlotte, especially in the second half last night. I would sort of highlight an X factor, though. I'd say. 
Cody Zeller. Mm-hmm. Um, Charlotte's plus 13 with him on the court in 26 and a half minutes last night. Cody sets 12 screen assists in under in under 27 minutes of basketball against the Nets. Like, wow. And he is a very good uh, interior defensive center. And if they're going to go all in on switching and, and feel comfortable to do it with him out there, then he's going to have to he's going to have to shoulder a load there, too, and stay out of foul trouble. Uh, Zeller's up to 7.7 screen assists for 36 minutes. Like they, for Kemba to get going big like that, they need Zeller to emerge as a, a not just as like a screen setter, which he is always good at that, but as an improved. He needs to bring more as a roller and a short roll passer, which we've seen flashes of, but he's not like this amazing rim running center. Um, yeah, like Cody's a really good player. I think in terms of like on off stuff, he, he look, he looks like the most impact second, most impactful guy outside of Kemba. And he's, you know, he's probably Charlotte's best defensive player too, depending on how you value he versus MKG. But yeah, I would say Cody Zeller is the X factor in terms of like what he unlocks for them defensively and offensively. I think it's funny. We talk about, you know, Zeller's impact only when he's gone, it feels like. Or at least I feel like a lot of fans only say, oh, Kimba, I mean, not Kimba, Cody is so important to this team, but they don't really recognize it while he's actually playing for this team. And I think that sometimes we forget that. But last question, actually, it wasn't a Twitter question. I just kind of want to pose this to you guys. And I know, Spencer, you have some strong feelings about this one. But uh, what are your thoughts on Frank Minsky's situation at the end of the bench? Uh, he's not playing. He's lost his backup you know, center role, third center role. He is just not playing whatsoever. And, you know, the situation with the buyout as well, I think some reports or some people acted like it was a done deal that he was going to get bought out by the Hornets. I'm just not sure what the purpose of buying out someone on their rookie contract is, especially when he's becoming a free agent. Like, has that ever happened? Has a rookie ever been bought out? Like, typically you hear of buyouts with veterans. It's, like, really, I, un- it's really unlikely. Yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah, very, very. Very, very rare, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I get that he's frustrated. I get that he's not getting playing time. But if he can just wait it out, you know, we were the organization that took a chance on him, drafted him. We passed on multiple picks to draft him. And then you're frustrated, quote-unquote, with the organization. I, I just don't get it. So just be be someone on the bench, cheer for the team, uh, and just let your contract run out, and you can go somewhere else in the summer. I just – I mean, it's just unheard of yeah. to buy out a, a rookie player. I do – you have strong feelings about this, which just even surprised me because it's not something you should have strong feelings about because, frankly, no pun intended, Frank Kaminsky is kind of not important in this league to not only the Hornets, but he's just he's not in the picture, right? So that is really what drives my frustration. Um, we don't need to go into all the semantics and details about it, all of it. You can go back on Twitter and read about it and follow, get on my timeline if you're really interested. But it's pretty obvious at this stage that – either Frank Kaminsky or Frank Kaminsky's agent or Frank Kaminsky's posse, whatever you want to call them are feeding information to one certain national writer. Uh, I won't say his name again. You can find that information if you want it. And this started a month before the trade deadline continued on trade deadline day. Um, and now it's a, you know, I would say it's a very obvious and clear smear campaign. I think that's fair to say, uh, on the Hornets, and Richie, exactly. What per like what rookie in this league on a rookie scale contract? Mm-hmm. How delusional do you have to be to think that you deserve someone who's fallen out of the rotation to to think that you deserve to just for the team to just do you a, a solid and let you walk? 
All right. And so that would take obviously Frank Kaminsky coming to the table and leaving some money on the table, which then makes some sense for Charlotte, right? Cause they save a little money. He's not yeah. going to do that. So if there were all these teams per this report that came out last week that wanted to trade for Kaminsky and of course the Hornets, you know, they didn't like any of these, these uh, alleged deals. So they, they turned them all down. If there were all these teams lining up playoff teams, also part of the report, lining up to trade for him. Well, where are they in the buyout market calling the Hornets and saying, mm-hmm. Hey, just buy this guy out. We're going to pick him up. Where are they? Yeah. If all this is true, then where are these teams? You know, it's, it's why, again, why it bothers me is because if this was a star player in the NBA or even a, just a rotational player on a second contract, like whatever that is, this is a player's league. This is the way these guys act these days. And, and I don't like it per se, but I get it, and I accept it, and I understand it. This is 2019 in the NBA. But you're, a, you're on a rookie contract. You have earned nothing, and you might not get a second contract. So for you to walk around and start putting bad press out through your camp, you know, to a franchise that already gets enough bad press, right. and I don't always defend this franchise. I don't think I, I need to tell anybody that. That pisses me off, and I think it – it doesn't look bad for the Hornets. It looks really bad for the player to me. I agree. I think considering like how these, how these reports are, are being made public is sort of, it's just different, right? Like it's not, it's, you know, normally when there's news with a player being frustrated, there are, there are a handful of, um, you know, sort of like access guys, you know, in NBA insiders, it's, Woj, it's Shams, it's Mark Stein. There's a few, you could name a few other guys, you know, that work for, for ESPN or whatever. And the fact that it's none of those guys, it's, it, it makes me a little skeptical, skeptical. to, yeah. to the, to the, like the validity of the report. If these are not the guys that are, no, whether that's, that's on me, like it, it's not those guys. And it's also not like a local beat person, right? Like it's not, it's not the, the Charlotte observers beat guy that's making this, that's making this report. And so that makes me a little wary, whether that's misguided on my part or not, who knows, um, devoid of much context. It seems so unlikely that multiple teams, multiple plural teams are calling the Hornets ahead of the deadline trade deadline saying we are willing to offer you picks and players for a guy that has played less than half the games this season or about half the games this season. A lot of those in garbage minutes, garbage time minutes too. And through the vast majority of his career, which is approaching four full seasons now has been pretty underwhelming. It just, it seems so unlikely. And again, we're, we're missing a lot of context because you don't know the picks or the players, but for a guy that's on an expiring contract for a guy that's, hasn't really hasn't been very good especially on the defensive end in his career and I think even his offense has been sort of overrated at times too it's just it's so unlikely and it's so it's just so weird to see this kind of reporting for a guy that is at best a role rotation player and at worst is a guy that's playing overseas next year and so it's just the these types of demands are just so they're so strange and it's just a it's a it's a this was never a good winning situation with Kaminsky and Charlotte. And yeah, it's just, it's unfortunate that's having to play out like this because the team's desperately trying to make a playoff push. That's the other thing that's funny to me too, is that part of the report is like, 
oh, there are Eastern Conference team playoff teams, playoff teams that are they're inquiring. They, they they're interested in Frank Kaminsky helping helping them with their you know down making this you know playoff run. And it's like if that were actually the case, Hornets would use them. Like would the you know, like yeah. the Hornets are playing the Hornets are playing Bismack Biombo fifteen to twenty minutes a night. Like if Frank Kaminsky were actually worth a damn, he'd be the one playing those minutes. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. um, and so it's just like it's of all the teams that could be using front court help to make a playoff push. It's the Hornets. They're certainly up there. Um, also say this too. Like I, I did see some, some Nets people on Twitter being like, Oh man, he'd be a, a great fit as the four in our system. And look at him. 38% three point shooting. Let me just say, y'all must not have seen this guy play all that much. Um, <laughs> if you think he can still play the power forward, I'm really skeptical how aware you are of this guy as a, as a pro and, and what he does or doesn't Correct. do. Those numbers, remember, all those threes come wide ass open, and there's a lot of fluctuation. He's not a guy that's going to hit two out of five every night. He's he's really streaky, um, and he offers very little counter offense when you run him off the three point line. And defensively, he's a total sieve, especially if you're playing him at the four and he offers no rim protection at the five too. It's just like it, it's it. It's one thing to be demanding, but when you have yeah. no leverage, it's just kind of hilarious. Right, right. I, I just want to add one more thing on this um, from a very simple human element, and that is the quote-unquote in this report from, from a few days ago, Frank is very frustrated. Now, <laughs> who that report, you know, who sent this writer that information? Information. I don't know. I'd be willing to put a lot of money on it that it wasn't the Charlotte Hornets that sent him that information. So that, yeah. that kind of limits the pull to a few people on the other side. And then you watch Frank Kaminsky in these last two games. And look, I might regret saying this, but him standing up on the bench and celebrating and clapping and, and being as, as animated as, as I can really remember seeing him. I mean, he's, I think he's been standing up and cheering and, and, and engaged throughout the season, but to do all of that after it's pretty obvious that someone close to you floated this information out that you're very frustrated makes you look like a jackass. It just does like, I'm sorry to me. I feel like I just got to get that off my chest and I have a platform here where I am. I can do that. So I'm going to take that uh, Liberty and, and just to, it, it really angers me. It just makes you look like you're flaunting this out in front of the team and the fans and you're, you're not hiding behind anything. You know, I just, it makes me really question how the rest of the league probably looks at this situation, looks at him and everything he brings when you consider, should we sign this guy? And that's all I'm going to say on this thing. Right. Right. It's, it's kind of very conflicting because you see these reports that he's frustrated, but then you see him on the bench, you know, you know, very into the game, almost overly into it. But you know, if these teams are lining up to, uh, you know, try to pick them up in the buyout market. I'm sure they'll be there in the summer as well. So there should be no worries in Frank Kaminsky's camp. Uh, if yeah, the can. truth the truth will come out on this, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely right. Exactly. So the, uh, the Hornets' next two games are at home uh, against Western Conference teams. The first place Warriors, uh, by the time you're listening to this, probably tonight, Monday night. And then the fifth place Rockets uh, on Wednesday. So be on the lookout for a Buzzcast game recap coming soon. In all likelihood, it will be the Warriors game tonight. Uh, but thanks again for tuning in to the 92nd episode. For Spencer and Brian, I am Richie. We will see you guys next time.